still listening. This is our final transmission. Welcome to Final Transmission. My name is Sam Russo, and with me, as always, is Jamie Carruthers. Wow, wow! I'm still doing, doing the, mo- the morning radio thing that we talked about off air. Uh-huh. Uh, that was a bad honk. You've, you've you've had some bad honks in your time as well, I bet. Yeah, and I never listen to morning radio, so I'm just making <laughs> it up as I go along. Here we are today to talk to you about the old dark house. Yeah, one of my personal all-time favorite movies, not just horror movies. It's a movie I love front to back. Very excited to hear Jamie's hot takes. I hadn't seen The Old Dark House before, so uh, this is uh, this is a new one for me. I had How read exciting. the J.B. Priestley novel that it's based on mm-hmm. way back. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked to talk about it. There's a lot There's a lot in there, a lot of potatoes to, to keep having. There are at least three potatoes to talk about in yeah. this movie. Four if you count uh, Boris Karloff. So obviously this, this movie holds a very cold dark little place in my heart uh, but i'd love to hear you talk us through a little bit of the action a little bit of the front to back what happens in the old dark house okay so the old dark house is the, it's a movie from 1932 it was directed by james whale i want to say after frankenstein mm-hmm. after some of his big hits yeah but one that isn't so sort of talked about quite as much maybe a bit more these days because i think the 4k restoration came out a few years ago didn't it and it's about uh, a couple the wavertons and their sort of louch friend, Tom Pender asked, what's his name? Penderell. Um, Penderell. Not Prendergast, that's a different movie. Yeah. They're driving to Shrewsbury, which I grew up quite close to, and they in the rain... I'm sorry, it's, the whole driving to Shrewsbury thing is hysterical to me from the beginning, but carry on. The, the rain is so bad that they end up uh, seeing a light at the old Frankenstein place, and they head up to the house and get in there and they are greeted with not quite hospitality from the the odd roster of uh, people that live in the home they're then uh, joined by charles lawton's character william porterhouse yeah and his Sir porterhouse and his his little gal friend gladys duquesne or perkins gladys duquesne depending yep. on uh whereabouts in the film you are and they are in this house there's a mute butler played by boris karloff who is Really stretched himself from his Frankenstein role there. <laughs> yeah, things are not quite what they seem in the old femme homestead uh, and hijinks ensue. Yep, the classic hijinks ensue. Will you give it up, man? Nobody's out there. We're alone. Oh no, there's somebody out there. I'm picking up all this crosstalk. Holy crap, I don't know about you, Jamie, when it comes to influential acoustic records affiliated with the punk rock genre, there are none finer, in my opinion, than the first Sundowner record, uh, which was released on Red Scare Industries many, many moons ago. Are you a Sundowner fan? I've I've dabbled. I've dabbled in the old Sundownies. You had a dibble and a dabble? Who can say they, they love music uh, that doesn't love? 4152 from 2007. It was an album that changed the course and the direction of my tiny little life on this earth. And Chris McCoggan, we thank you very much for that. Beautiful record. Good record, good guy, good label. Uh, we love Sundowner, we love Chris, we love Red Scare, we love 20 years of punk rock out of the beating heart of Chicago. And uh, with that, let's go back to the show. 
be. I mean, this movie starts with such an atmosphere of discomfort. Yeah. And is so rapidly leading you into an even more uncomfortable situation. I just love how this movie opens. It's classic, like howling strings, pounding rain, vicious wind. Yeah. All we see is is two people in the front of a car absolutely drenched and we're not talking we're talking a motor car like a 1932 yeah. motor car and it's bouncing along that there's even a shot of mr waverton's neck and he says i love the feeling of icy rainwater dripping down my neck and it's just like someone pouring a jug of water down his back they're absolutely soaked remind me when, I, when my mum would wash my hair when i was like eight <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean? It reminded me of like... Maybe I was watching my being... own hair when I was eight. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Just on your CB radio, having your hair washed by your mum in the bath, gummo style, play a spaghetti. <laughs> it reminded me of like every shitty paper round I did in the winter, you know, where mm. you're just like, your skin is absolutely soaked, you're freezing cold. They're doing that classic British thing of being really passive aggressive with each other, super tense. And then we, we see that Pendrel... The um, slightly more laid back character in this threesome is literally, you know, reclining in the back seat with his hat pulled down over his eye, happy as a clam, um, bumping along, trying to light his pipe in the back of the car. And they are they're moving towards this this old dark house. Well, initially, they're fairly hopeless. The the rain and the flooding is such that they keep getting stuck. Yeah. Uh, There's an amazing landslide. Do you remember the landslide effect? The mountain just sort of moves out. Yeah, the whole side of the mountain just like slides out and then the whole fucking top of the mountain tumbles down into yeah. the road. Uh, I think that just looks amazing. Like, it, as a as a practical effect, they must have just built the mountainside and pushed a car into it yeah. and caused it to, like, crumple. It looks amazing. And, and the lighting is very of its time. You know, it's big flashes of light that wash everything out for a second or two. It's It's very, like... It's kind of guttering. All the in in any black and white movie of this era, the rain looks like silver, doesn't it? It's yeah. all just like you know flying down like foil. It just looks amazing. And so I, you know, the second I started watching this movie for the first time, I just fell completely in love with it from that opening scene. I thought it was incredible. It's probably because they use mercury for the rain, right? <laughs> yeah, just mercury <laughs> and a fucking hose with a thumb over the end of it. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of unhealthy things happening in the making of this movie. That's for sure. I don't know if they did use mercury. I think they definitely just used 45 gallons of mercury, just raining it down on their stars. Uh, I came across this movie in quite an interesting way. I'd never heard of it until... Did um, you clean up afterwards? So I like James Rolfe, the guy who is the angry video game nerd and also has a a horror YouTube channel called Cinemassacre. I like him a lot. Mm. And um, he actually did a review of this movie as part of his um, Monster Madness series. And uh, I wasn't expecting to see this movie in there because he was doing a lot of classics and I thought I kind of knew a lot of the classics but he talked about this and I'd never heard of it and then was astounded to find out it was you know technically a Boris Karloff movie so that was how I was introduced to it and then I obviously sought it out and watched it and then I kind of did it the reverse order I found out it was based on a J.B. Priestley novel which I then read and absolutely loved I'm assuming like a lot of people listening to this probably had J.B. Priestley sort of forced on them at school did you do Priestley when you were at school? I don't think I did, no. Oh, okay. We did an Inspector Calls, like, to death Mm. for GCSE. So, you know, I had J.B. Priestley in my mind as, like, school, basically, like, kind of a... You know, the stuff you do at school you don't necessarily love until later, I find. I remember remember thinking, like, the message of an Inspector Calls was absolutely amazing. I loved it. And I, I was... I felt like a horror play to me. Mm. Like it was, it was such a, a play full of like mystery and intrigue and thrills and stuff that I really love in horror. 
and and was starting to love as a 15 16 year old so when i found out it was a jb Priestley novel i was i was just fucking all over it like and i love the novel i mean it's short what is it the edition i have is you know, it clocks in at like 170, 180 pages. I think mine was 160, yeah. Yeah, and this, I've got like a nice nice edition of it with a, a big long intro and some context and everything else. Like the Valancourt, um, and the, the Valancourt one from a few years ago. Yeah, 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 yeah. Is it this one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sick. But the, the movie itself, you know, I mean, it's no secret, I quite like short horror movies. It's an hour and 12. So, you know, even before I watched this movie, I was just so excited to see it because what I don't do generally speaking with movies is watch any of it beforehand I'll avoid all trailers I don't I, I try not to um even really read about it in advance but because I'd kind of had my interest peaked and I'd seen these clips on YouTube the atmosphere of the clips that I'd seen was just ticking every single conceivable box yeah. for my like preferences when it comes to horror movies so I was incredibly excited to watch it and normally when you're excited about a movie especially like potentially a slightly kitsch 1930s horror movie that didn't never really hit its stride in terms of you know publicity and and you know in terms of uh, critical reception you could be a little bit let down but i was absolutely riveted for the entire movie so yeah from the opening scene to the moment that we see the old dark house you know there's so much of the external of the old dark house that's totally left to your imagination because you only ever see the front doorway yeah and the steps and for, for 99% of the movie, you only see that at night, really. You see a little bit of the stables, you see a downstairs window, and that's it. And then the rest of it's inside. From pretty early on, you're introduced to, to our basically our three main characters, I guess. Uh, the Wavertons, Philip and Margaret. And we have uh, Pendrel, who is a, a war veteran. And, and his character is obviously a lot deeper I mean, all this is a character study, right? The whole movie is a character study. And the book... I don't know if he is much deeper he's certainly presented as he's quite cynical but like in the book sure. i found his character quite bitter quite like a bit intense and yeah, he is sure. he is the the goofball of the of the gang mm. in, in the movie for sure yeah. he's a lot more laid back um in the book he's a lot more reactive he's a bit quicker to you know yeah ignite but he, you know in the in the uh in the movie obviously we're treated to to the visual side of pendrel and he looks a little bit like uh, i don't know he's got the pencil mustache like the very sort of trimmed Pencil moustache gives me kind of Vincent Price vibes, but like a cuddly Vincent Price almost. Yeah, like Vincent Price in real life rather than in, in a film. It's probably also the case that this was just a look of the time. Do you know mm. what I mean? That moustache, that hair, the clothes. I mean, the wardrobe in this movie is absolutely superb. We can touch on that a little bit later. But, you know, we're greeted by all this torrential rain, this thick stone house. Total discomfort from from the, the very get-go. It's grimly uncomfortable. The, the There's landslides, there's danger, there's legitimate danger. You know, this car looks like a tin can. It's getting smashed around. When we get to the house, we get our first glimpse of Boris Karloff in, in this role with his not-quite-Frankenstein makeup. Uh, yeah. As he opens the door, we see half of his face. And I think it's quite a, quite a terrifying sight. You know, it's lit in that beautiful, like, half-lit kind of way. He's got a huge kind of gaping scar on his nose. He doesn't say anything. Uh, and then he starts kind of mumbling. And immediately we're kind of treated to what will be a theme for the whole movie where we get a little bit of horror and then a big gloop of classic British deadpan yeah. comedy, basically. Well, that doesn't Pendrel sound like says, any Welsh that I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, even Welsh or not sound like that. Superb. So, I mean, how do you, as a Welshman, how do you feel about that characterization? Well, I'm not a Welshman, but I grew up in Wales. <laughs> you are now. <laughs> I'm about as Welsh as the people who are in this movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, right. In the, I've been to Wales. I, like I said in the synopsis, so I grew up near where this is supposed to be. And there is a bit of a, 
a trope or a, a stereotype of people from Shrewsbury, which you might equate to like people from Norfolk. Sure. Like that sort of well-to-do, but like backwards mm-hmm. type, backwards rather than backwards yeah. type of person who, I don't know, there's a lot of jokes about incest, a lot of jokes about mm-hmm. like that sort of thing for for Shrewsbury and the surrounding areas. It was fun to see like some of that play out here. I don't think it's too on the nose. I don't think it's, it, mm. it, I think it remains unsaid, but I think if you know it, you're like, oh yeah, Shrewsbury. <laughs> that's the exact response. But that, that's the thing. You're absolutely right. I, you know, I don't see it as being too on the nose that geographically where we are is, is you know, quote unquote that way. I think it's more about the people yeah. um, who are not quintessentially Shrewsbury types in my experience yes but again i find that jarring i I think that's great i think there's a real kind of grind there between the people in the house and the geographical region and they are so separate from it they're 100 percent in and of that house yeah we soon find out one of the things that watching this for the first time sort of put me in the mind of was watching gray gardens i don't know if you've seen the gray gardens documentary from the 70s no it's a so it's a documentary about and it's super sort of Kind of gross and voyeuristic, but it's a classic of, of the of the documentary genre. It's one of like the first like big important documentaries that set the scene for what we think of as documentaries now. And it's just about these okay. two old like aging rich people in this house that's falling apart. And they are there's a scene where well, there's a, there's a moment where um, one of them takes a bag of Wonder Bread up to the attic and just like throws it all on the floor so all the raccoons can eat it. Oh, Jesus, okay. And they're just, like, living in this, like... I think they were they were distantly related to Jackie Onassis. Right. And so they are, like, super rich, but, like, super uh, eccentric would be the nice way of saying it. Sure. And they just live in this house, and they... It's like a mother and a daughter, and they just, like... Yeah. The idea of, like, sort of watching these rich people is sort of voyeuristic and often, like, funny. Yeah. I, th- I think there's obviously a, a big... In, in the old dark house, there's a big sort of class element that we're supposed to be seeing here, which is hard to see because of all the received pronunciation of, of the people that aren't the upper class people that live in the house. Sure. So with, I don't know, 2023 20, ears, it's it's a, it's a bit more difficult to be like, oh yeah, here, there's a class divide here, but there is yeah. meant to be a class divide. So yeah, so like it really sort of put me in that mind and like we're, we're watching them and it's meant to be juxtaposed with our own prejudices or in the case of the film here, we're meant to be seeing like the Waverton's prejudices. Sure. But yeah, it's like I say, it's hard to, it's hard to find that class divide now because yeah. of the way that everyone is so fucking posh. <laughs> yeah. And that's the, th- yeah, you're right. It takes a very subtle ear and, you know, maybe people who, uh, who are more well-versed on movies of the time and the, the culture within which that this movie was made and emerged would, would hear that a bit more, you know, brightly but i think they do a great job of painting out the class divide without making it like a pastiche without making people into caricatures by adding the right amount of depth without it being loaded with exposition even though we get some pretty amazing speeches (laughs) you know i think slowly as as people's characters are revealed we get more of a sense of their class you know beyond their accent and beyond the way that they present visually on screen yeah speaking of which this is when you know i consider this an Ernest Thessinger movie. I think this is my favourite. This is in my top five performances by an actor of all time is Ernest Thessinger in Old Dark House. Yeah. He he comes down the stairs. He just, every single scene that he's in for me, he completely steals. He must have been a nightmare to work with because <laughs> there's nobody else on screen when he's there. Yeah. He looks the creepiest I think he's ever looked. Um, I mean, he obviously goes on to bigger roles despite being pretty far on in his career. But, you know, he's... He's drawn, he's thin. He, I mean, he's like rake thin. 
He's got deep sunken eyes with big black bags. He's got this kind of bizarre, prim, proper English accent. Yeah. He's got a slight lisp. His mouth is very taut. He's my style icon, essentially. Like I model myself on Ernest Dessinger in this movie. <laughs> he comes downstairs and the first thing he does is say, my sister was in the point of arranging these flowers. And then he throws the flowers into the, into the fire. I love that. <laughs> Such a great introduction to a character. And, and, you know, everyone is kind of, I think, taken aback by him. They're taken aback by Morgan for obvious reasons, Boris Karloff's character, because he's a mute, enormous, brutish butler type. But they soon sort of gloss over that and they're, they're sucked in by Ernest Thessinger's entry down the stairs and he's, he sort of glides around and he's he's incredibly vampire-like, yeah. I think. Uh, when you first see him, you think, here's the bad guy. Well, I think that's one of the interesting things about this film and, and I would say maybe... James Whale's films, uh, moreover, is that um, sure. obviously James Whale was a, a gay man, yep. and like you, you feel a lot of that in in his films. There's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of that already out there. I don't think we need to go into too much detail about sure. about how sort of queer this and the other James Whale films are. But what what did strike me is how much of the tropes of like a, a, a scary presence embodied in a man, like um, like Horace Fenn here. I think Horace Femme is probably the the pinnacle of it. Really, is is that um, like how much of that is just stereotypical gay affectations and Ty like campness. yeah, and how much of like the the stuff that we consider really menacing in 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 some of these old movies and even in some of the new movies, really in the newer movies, is is um, it all just comes from like gayness and mm. and, and 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 speaking in a way that a, that a gay person would have spoken around this time. I mean, sure. he is very effete and he is really funny, but like it's it's all just sort of coming from that that gayness. I don't know if if, uh, if uh, Ernest Messenger was a uh, was gay. I have no idea. I, I I'm I'm really interested to know. You know, do you think his character in this movie is gay? Yeah, I think there's 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 queer coding in almost all of the femmes. Mm. I mean, they're they're called the femmes for one. Yeah. So like. Yeah. <laughs> He's he's coded as gay. I mean, they don't say it because it's 1932. And you can't be like, yeah. hello, I'm a gay man now. Not now, yeah. but forever. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so obviously I think he's gay. Saul and Morgan, obviously, that's a whole, whole relationship there. I mean, mm. I don't know what the reading of the film is if they're not gay. I, like, I don't know what, that, what the film is if they're not a couple. Oh, I'm really keen to get into that because, you know, we're not just speculating about character sexuality for the fun of it it's super important that we dig a little bit into the motivations of these characters and a lot of it is fairly overt sexuality and monologues to that effect you know this movie i think is desperately trying to convey messages about sexuality and there's, there's an enormous amount of like incestuous subtext there's yeah. a great degree of like that there's there's closet metaphors galore you know that the whole movie is is heavily loaded towards wanting us to sort of explore the sexuality of the characters a little bit, I think. Yeah, and I think all the straight relationships are all presented for comedy. Yeah, and and if they're not presented for comedy, I felt like completely out of keeping with the tone of the movie, they're so over-the-top Hollywood and sweet and cheesy that they lose all kind of value. Well, uh, I just think they're so horny. It feels like Gone with the Wind times a million. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, there's like there's a There's a moment where... A porthouse and, and Gladys are having a conversation and he says, so you got your feet wet? And she says, yeah. yes, Bill, and that wasn't all either. And he was like, yeah, I don't suppose it was. Like, yeah, <laughs> it's so horny. It's totally overt. It's kind of gross. Yeah. Like it's, it doesn't feel like it should have been allowed. Literally, it feels so, it's almost there to 
to maybe distract the straits or like the people from all of this sort of subversive gayness that's happening yeah. over here. It's like, hey, look, maybe there's loads more of this that we've taken out because you didn't want it to be so horny. Uh, but it's it's there to sort of draw the attention away, draw the fire from the uh, from the, the gayness. Dude, I could not agree more. And I think that's a huge part of Porterhouse's character, isn't it? It's dragging everything back to earth. You know, he's obviously like risen up from working class roots to become this incredibly rich dude who's completely miserable, which is which I think gives the character great depth. But he's also there, I think, to ground everything and to stop. You know, Pendra is essentially like a, you know, a man of wanderlust and falling in love at first sight. And he's he's very romantic. And I think, you know, he needs that anchor to kind of to kind of pull him back. And I think that's what, you know, as soon as that guy just like blusters into the room and starts laughing and telling jokes and everything, we're like, OK, He's the new focal point of attention. He's going to suck all the air in the room. And, and it, it has a grounding effect, I think. But the the, the side of Ernest Essinger, the many sides that we see in his entrance, you know, we see, we, we, we're immediately informed that he's an atheist and his sister is not. He, he comes across as very authoritative, but also incredibly fearful. He's very effeminate, but also quite assertive. Yeah, he's, he's got so many angles to him and we're just complete, like my eyes and my ears are just on him the entire time. He says hilarious shit followed by incredibly dark, bleak stuff. Yeah, He, he goes from pleading to snide in like, you know, on the flip of a coin. It's incredible. He has, he has iconic lines in this movie and things that I will be saying until I die. And, and yeah, starting from hurling those flowers into the fire, we're just treated every single scene he's in to some serious screen mastery. Is it is it him who is visibly terrified and someone says, you're afraid, aren't you? Yeah, <laughs> that's him. When he's afraid to go get the lamp. Yeah. The he's like, lamp he's like, oh! and they're like, you're, yeah. af- you're afraid, aren't you? <laughs> yes, I am, actually. He gives a, there's a huge speech in the, in the introduction of all the characters. We meet, uh, you know, we meet his sister and Rebecca Femme is only outshone by Ernest Thessinger in this movie. She's absolutely fantastic, I think, from the very beginning. You know, she's screaming, hollering, deaf as a post, running around, constantly, like, sharp and angular and clenched, and her whole performance is just so unnerving from the beginning. She's got, like, a tight little mouth, and she's always talking about damnation. And I mean, what's your take on her early scenes, her introduction to the movie? Well, again, another very queer-coded character... It feels like it's all coming from a place of repression and it sort of loosens up in that one scene where she's with Margaret uh, Waverton mm-hmm. in the bedroom and she's like, mm-hmm. this is fine, but it will rot. Your skin is finer, but it will rot too. It's like, oh, yeah. all right. Terrifying. Yeah, terrifying, but also like very, very gay. But yeah, she's she's terrifying. And like, is she deaf or is she playing it for for spooks? Who knows? Mm. Because, well, there's quite a few scenes where she does hear yeah. things that are said quite quietly. Yeah, so I think you're right to question that. I wasn't sure. It's, it's, yeah, is she playing dumb? Is she playing... There's that one back and forth where, like, I think she's walking with uh, Margaret Waverton to the bedroom. And she's like, mm. oh, it's an old... It's raining out there. And she's like, yes, it's a very old house. And it's like, well, yeah, you must be hearing something. You don't, yeah. you don't just hear nothing and then respond. So, yeah, I don't know. A very spooky character. A very scary lady. Probably set, probably set the mold for like all scary lady characters that came afterwards. I think, like this film, despite the fact that well, obviously now it's a bit more well known. I think for fifty years in between, probably it was big when it first came out. It disappeared in the sixties because there was a rights issue with the remake, 
Okay. Uh, so it basically went out of print for a big, very long time. Right. So there was no there was no access to it. So I, I feel like it, it became one of those films that was just kind of lost. Mm-hmm. And then was maybe like, almost like, you know, MF Doom is like your your favorite rapper's favorite rapper. It's like your right. your favorite director's favorite horror film is this. But you'll, you'll never sure. see it. But we, obviously we can see it now because we live in the future and everything's amazing. Um, <laughs> yeah. In terms of films, obviously everything else is fucking horrible. <laughs> there was a big period of time where the only people that see this are the people that, that are making these other films and that are making, yeah. that, are, that are informing these sort of stereotypes about characters and building on like the, the, the mythology of, of and tropes of, of characters like this of these sort of spooky, weird, are they bad? Who, who can quite tell they feel bad, mm. but we don't really know why. Like the, yeah, the only, and that's the creepiness, yeah, right? The only person that, that is overtly bad uh, is is Morgan, yeah. the uh, the Boris Karloff character, who ultimately is redeemed in the end by being the only one that shares any real emotion. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of a lot of this film that sort of dumbfounds me because I don't understand right. anyone's real motivations. Sure, and I think it it, it comes from that. I don't know. We, we wrote this in 1931 and. We don't really know how people speak. I can't. I can't write the way that I would speak. I have to write yeah. in this flowery, hidden. Like all the back and forths have to sound like they're from the Philadelphia Story or something. Everyone is so witty and snappy that yeah. you can't. No, nothing ever sounds like anyone's ever actually said it. But that's why. That's I think where a lot of the mystery comes from. Yeah. And where where we really see just how much these characters are hiding is in that dialogue. Because so much of it is cryptic and so much of it is, you know, layered. Yeah. And like you said before, coded to a certain extent. I mean, everything Rebecca says from the second she comes on screen is fucking deeply misleading. Yeah. <laughs> you know, she's, she's, she's walking around shouting, no beds, they can't have beds. Yeah. And it's just a great, creepy, like, why? why? Why can't they have beds? What are you hiding in the bedrooms? You're immediately questioning what's going on upstairs in the house upstairs in her mind you know we're supposed to think in my opinion we're supposed to think that they're quote-unquote crazy from pretty early on yeah you know they're definitely eccentric but as soon as we see them interacting we're supposed to think that yeah they're obviously brother and sister they've spent way too much time together but they're also locked away in this old dark house outside shrewsbury shrewsbury sorry and they're a little bit mental i think that's what we're supposed to think from early on which i think is proven later on but the setup is great immediately as soon as Ernest Thessinger's character hears that there's this insane storm outside that he hasn't even really noticed up until this point I don't think he's terrified of being trapped in the house he's terrified of landslides and being isolated and flooded which he snaps out of pretty quickly because it makes no but sense really because like he is isolated yeah I guess there's completely. There's, there's always the, the the possibility that he could leave which which yeah. he maybe lose with the with the weather but like yeah he he is isolated. He's always been isolated. Like, we, we, the yeah. assumption is that they live there forever. So like, mm-hmm. I don't know if that is an affectation by his character to be like, mm. oh, you're scared about this, so now I'm going to be scared about this. But then we'll get over that pretty quickly, and we'll be more scared of Broderick and yeah. Saul. But that's what's I think beautifully misleading is that there's you know there's a line of dialogue. I think it's Mister Waverton says, evidently there's no danger here, and you think, yeah, yeah, there is. <laughs> like you're in the mouth of the beast. For me, it's very stage the way uh, Rebecca and Horace 
come in from each side of the screen and tell you something fucked is about to happen. Yeah. Like they just keep coming on and leaving and just dropping these absolutely like massive pivotal pieces of information. Like we find out from Rebecca that Morgan drinks and when he drinks, he goes completely insane and storms set him off. <laughs> so immediately we're thinking, okay, here's this enormous monster butler guy that nobody has any control over who's about to start drinking and just absolutely tee off. Yeah. They set up that there's alcohol in the house by the whole, hey, it's gin. I like gin. Do you like gin? I like gin. Yeah. I mean, his his I like gin line is, you know, forever in my mind as one of the greatest. Do you say deliveries. it every single time you pour yourself a gin? Of course I do. Yeah, absolutely. Much to everyone around me's despair. You should see what happens when we have potatoes for dinner. He, he carries this tray out with his little gin glasses and obviously Pendrel's all over it. We can tell that Pendrel likes us up. And he pours it out and he just says, I like gin, with a real like mischievous kind of look on his face. <laughs> and you know that that's not going to go anywhere good. You, you, you're sort of lulled into thinking, here they are having a toast and a chat. But you just know that's going to rapidly spiral out of control. And that's what keeps it so tense and creepy. People are kind of creeping onto screen at all times mm. and delivering these horribly ominous bits of information with huge wide eyes like the wide-eyed stuff is what makes it so creepy to me and we you know we find out that in this horribly dank cobwebby stone house the gigantic scarred terrifying butler is probably about to go on a bender and go insane and that changes the whole dynamic of the movie from then on out uh, and it sets a precedent for you know like i said people showing up and saying here's something that's fucked goodbye <laughs> and then everyone has to deal with it so, yeah, we're, we're worried because he's obviously been painted out to be scary. Do you find at this point in the movie, you know, in your first watch, are you kind of creeped out by Morgan? What do you think's going on there as you're watching at well, this point? Like you're, the movie wants you to be terrified of him. And the movie wants you to think, oh, God, this is a scary fucking dude. He's got a big scar on yeah. his face. He's got a beard and everyone else is clean shaven. He's mm. like, it's it's a whole thing. And like the, the, the movie is designed to make you think, well, this is a scary fucking dude. But he doesn't do anything scary apart from stand around for a while and, yeah. like, look a bit... Ooh. Yeah, leery. I'm going to shock you now, Sam, but I've watched a few films. So I know that there's probably some subversion happening here. Yeah. Like, we know that it's James Whale. We know that he's a thoughtful filmmaker. We know that mm -hmm. he identifies with outsiders and with monsters. So so straight away, I'm, al I'm already like, well, maybe Morgan isn't everything that we think he is. I mean, he is a yeah. bit of what we think he is, but he's not... Mm. Maybe he's not everything that we think he is. So I had that in my mind the whole time, sort of informing the quote-unquote performance that Boris Karloff is doing here, which, I mean, he must have been so bored. He must have been bored. He must have also had a lot of quite restrictive direction, I would think, because James Whale wants something very specific out of him in this movie. And I think his his lack of speech is, is what kind of, you know, tipped me off that there's probably more going on here than we're being treated to. You know, you remove a character's speech, there's something... You know, there's a message to be to be conveyed later on. I think. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Like, I, I know he gets kind of slammed for this performance just for being a little bit inert for a lot of the movie, but I I think it's a a fucking massive home run. I think he does everything he's supposed to do really fucking well, and I don't see how anyone could have done it better. You know, when he is just that, you know, it's quite easy to dismiss him as like just that lumbering presence. There's not many people who could pull that off with that level of subtlety like to be that threatening and that huge but also that vulnerable and kind of almost shy you know when he opens that door for the first time he does look menacing but he's also a little bit yeah scared of the outside you know i think there's layers there and it's 
you know, it's done really well with lighting. Uh, you know, lighting is like like a tool of a master in this movie. Like there's so much done just with pointing a light at somebody. Yeah. Which I miss and I love, uh, especially about movies of this era. And I think, you know, I'm kind of shit scared of him to begin with because especially standing next to Horace Thessinger, uh, Horace Thessinger, <laughs> sorry, Horace Femme, <laughs> Ernest Thessinger, you know, he's frail, he's tiny. Yeah. You know, Boris Karloff next to him is is literally like, a monster he literally looks like a monster so his presence is always ominous and you know he's off in like the servants quarters and who knows what's going on in there and again the class divide stuff starts to come out a little bit and i think really what we're treated to there is is some pretty blatant and very cool juxtaposition you know he's he's mute everyone else is talking a lot and yeah. about not much and really kind of saying their peace and then walking away and they're uh, for all intents and purposes kind of posh and he is not he's pretty rough and ragged even though he's essentially wearing a suit i love that like if, <laughs> everyone's wearing a suit but the poor people have rumpled suits yeah like, <laughs> it's crazy <laughs> and he's obviously scarred he's obviously a little bit hideous the women kind of recoil from him when they see him i think he's introduced really well yeah so i i thought where the film was going was that somehow the the femmes were keeping him subdued and mm. like he was a prisoner there was was where I thought it was going to go. Same, yeah. Um, and it didn't go there, obviously. Yeah. There are other people in the house that are being held prisoner. Um, I was interested to talk about the character of Roderick Fenn. Sure. Besides the fact that we, Whale is playing with, with gender here a bit, is there a reason you think that, that that character is played by a woman? No, dude. Why, in this time period, in this movie... If it wasn't a, compl- a totally deliberate choice, would you, w- you know, why would you cast a woman as an old man? You've got a, th- a million old men to play that role. I have a better question. Why wouldn't you cast one that was better at being a man? Because, Absolutely. Because I was like, is this a woman? She's got a beard. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean I th- and I think that's, the, that's what, what, what the film wants from you. Serious ambiguity there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, obviously they're referred to throughout the film as Sir Roderick Femme. We, we know that that's who that character is. So we know that it's meant to be a man. But it's like, it's, I was watching it with Kaz and I was like, is, is, is this Roderick Femme? Is this meant to be a man? And she was like, no, it's a little old lady. And I was like, yeah, yeah. what's what's happening? Old women grow hair on their face. Yeah. You know, it's not like, it's not overt. The, the gender of this person is not like rammed in your face. If, if their name wasn't Sir Roderick Femme, I would think... That was an old lady. Yeah. And the makeup's pretty bad. The Even for the time. Yeah, the, the voice is just a woman's voice. It's like... Voice is terrible. The laugh. <laughs> you know, it's it's, <laughs> yeah. it's so bizarre. That whole scene, all of the visuals in that scene, uh, you just constantly feel like you're trying... Like that there's something that's uh, trying to be conveyed through this use of gender in the casting. How Again, like... How and what, I mean, I know there's an ancient tradition of, of, of people playing the opposite gender in, in on stage and in film. And, you know, it goes back as, as early as time itself. But like, but why here? Yeah. You know, if, if anything, you could have just done up Ernest Thessinger yeah. to play that role. You could have done a million things there, but they specifically chose this woman to play this 104-year-old man. <laughs> why? Like, what's being done here? What, what, what are your thoughts? It's, it's meant to confuse the audience. Yeah. Because I don't think anybody's looking at this character and going, "That's a that's an old man." Yeah. Even even in stills, you'd be like, well, "I'm pretty sure that's a lady." Especially in stills, because you don't see any of the movement yeah. or like. So I th- I think Whale is 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 literally trying to just be playful and confuse the audience and have us on the back foot. 
Yeah. I don't really think it leads anywhere interesting. No. And I like the playful take. I hadn't really thought of it that way because I see it as this like ominous shut away secret. But when you look back on it, some of the interactions there are pretty playful. There's yeah. a lot of laughter and a lot of stuff is kind of played for... I mean, for me, it's one of the slightly more disappointing scenes, if I'm completely honest, because I think it could have been like a culmination of all this unease and horror. Yeah. Um, you know, you could have had somebody who looked really terrifying in that bed. It's the same way I feel about Zelda in Pet Cemetery. Like, I'm not even remotely scared of Zelda. I think it's... That's insane. Is it because Zelda looks a bit like you? Yeah, it looks like, trust me, me and Ernest Dessinger. Yeah, that's what I wanted to see in that bed. Something truly horrifying. Because that's... Zelda is objectively one of the scariest things that's ever existed in the world ever. I don't know what it says about me as a horror viewer. I find Zelda fucking dismissibly hilarious almost. And I feel... I don't feel... I think this character is scarier. I think um, Sir Roderick makes me more uneasy than Zelda. And I know that's maybe a hot take. I'm not trying to be controversial here, but I just, it just does nothing for me. The storyline works. I love the idea of the shutaway, sickly relative, but the reveal is so disappointing to me. Yeah. And I think this character could have been a really like skeletal old guy with great horror makeup, you know, really deep set, sunken, everything, bald, no crazy hair everywhere. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't, yeah. doesn't work for me on that level. But... You know, we're treated to some really good exposition in that scene that doesn't feel too clunky. My main issue with the scene is that it that it feels like here's this scene. It doesn't mm. it doesn't really affect anything else. Obviously, we learn about Saul in the other the other room, but we don't need to have this scene to do that. Sure, like, no, I agree. Yeah, it it just sort of feels like here's a moment where something could be spooky, and it's not as spooky as it could be. It's just sort of confusing. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe there's more sort of spooky vibes that are aimed for here rather than horrific. I mean, I'm I'm just saying what I wanted to see. I'm not saying it's done badly. You know, I wanted something like a horrific, at this point, like a crescendo. You're going up the stairs the whole movie. You just want people to get up stairs. They're constantly climbing to the top floor. And when they get there, it's just like, okay, who's this old woman? <laughs> what the fuck's going on? Yeah, I think one of the interesting things about the, the, the journey up the stairs and then back down is yeah. that Waverton... Is, yeah. is on a mission to get this lamp that's yeah. very heavy but it's not that heavy but it's heavy <laughs> which I love dude all, I love all the of that whole stuff. lamp scene so like he goes yeah. up to get this lamp and then he gets back down with it and he throws it on yeah. the floor yeah. he, he <laughs> throws it at Morgan he, he, yeah yeah Again, like the first time I watched this, I was in deep symbolism mode. And I'm like, he's climbing the stairs on a quest to get the light for everybody else to bring it back down. And then he has to use the light to smash the dark beast. And I think that was a bit too much. But I mean, I think I think that's in there. Yeah, that's probably there. Yeah, it's probably the, the vague idea. And the light's too heavy for the old atheist cynic to carry. Do you know what I mean? Like all of that stuff plays really well for me. Yeah, I think if you said it not in that voice then it wouldn't sound so stupid. I'm self-conscious of my deep reads <laughs> of movies like this. but I love a know, deep read. In amongst all of that, we're getting this this dinner scene. So they all sit down to supper and uh, Rebecca insists on saying a prayer. There's a great, again, like the, the, the faith theme in this, like, you know, we've got an atheist brother and we've got a devout, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, devout Christian um, character. And they're constantly at each other about religion. She insists on saying a prayer, uh, a blessing, and then they, they all eat. And this is the one scene that mystified me a little bit on the class front, because I think I'm supposed to know something here that I don't. 
it's a horribly uncomfortable eating scene as are most eating scenes in most horror movies but we, we see Rebecca just kind of load her plate up quite quickly you know she's characterized by these hard jerky movements and she's just stuffing food into her mouth quite quickly we see the Waverton sort of picking at their food a little bit we see Pendrel very relaxed just kind of eating like a quote-unquote normal person and we, we don't really see Horace do a lot with his food no, he's, he's, he's mostly of... just giving it out yeah, well, he's just sort of poking it around yeah. and handing people stuff. Yeah, have a potato. And then we've got Morgan. Yeah, he says have a potato three times, and every time it's fantastic. <laughs> like have a potato. It's it's completely perfect in its delivery. It's funny, but it's also kind of creepy. It's like, very creepy. Like what's what happening is, in these potatoes? Like what is? Yeah, what's the deal with the potatoes? What's the symbolism? But I don't also, know. like, is it, aren't the potatoes kind of gross as well? Like someone. Is it one of the one of the Wavertons just like cutting into Wavertons it? Wavertons like he he flicks like a little black something off of his potato. Yeah, yeah. don't know what it is. Can't tell. No. but we've got Boris Karloff just like lingering in the background, giving out pickled onions. What's her name? Femme. Ba- ba- Barbara. Rebecca. Rebecca Femme. Femme. Uh, yeah. She has so many pickled onions. I wrote it down. I think like, she has six pickled yeah. onions. <laughs> so many. That's like half what I would eat. So I didn't think that was weird at all. But the dinner is is a huge joint of. Looks kind of cold roast beef. Yeah. A big, you know, russet potato and, and some pickled onions. So I, I don't know because I lack the, the knowledge of, you know, English history and, and social norms if that's a weird meal or not. I think that's probably very normal for yeah. the time. Yeah, meat potatoes, but right? we get these lingering pan shots of everyone's plates and what they're doing with their food. And I didn't fully know what to read from that. I didn't know if maybe Rebecca is being portrayed in some way as gluttonous, which feels weird with her character because she's so stoic mm. and appears very threadbare and thrifty. So I, do, do, do you read anything on that? Do you see what was going on at dinner? My read was that Rebecca is just trying to eat and get the fuck out of there. Right. Um, obviously, we understand that the Wavertons are nervous to be in this situation. Sure. Pendrel is obviously very relaxed and just eating normally, quote unquote, mm-hmm. as he said. And Horace is like in control in that in that situation. Mm-hmm. He's he's in charge of giving the food out to him and and Morgan. And I think yeah. that's what we're that's the the dynamic that we're meant to be seeing there is that I think one of the one of the times in 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 life when you're you're most vulnerable is when somebody else is giving you food. It could be anything. Sure. So I think that's maybe something that they're playing with here. Yeah, I could see that. That makes sense. I mean, I, sense. I, we'll never know. Yeah, but we will literally never know. I mean, Rebecca is she has a pile of like chopped up, scrappily chopped up bread next to her plate that she's shoveling in with every mouthful. Yeah. Nobody else is doing that. I just think there's something interesting happening in that scene. Yeah, and it is quite played out. You know, it's quite a long scene. You've got howling wind the entire time. I mean, throughout the entire movie. Yeah. But really pronounced in this scene you know flickering candles lots of shots of people's faces just kind of looking at each other which is great and i think that's maybe pulling from the book you know there's a lot of descriptions of how people are looking at each other and sizing each other up in the book so maybe it's that um but that's when saul is first mentioned so saul who we later find out is the brother who's been shut away in his room we don't know why until later on but it's actually because he is an insane violent pyromaniac who's been shut away for the safety of the family and for his own good. And yeah, that's when Horace kind of slips up and mentions Saul and Roderick. But yeah, we can't really figure out what's happening at dinner. And and that's when we get Porterhouse and Gladys bursting into the scene and bringing a little bit of um, relief to the tension because we see sort of uh, very much living characters. Everyone's quite stiff up until this point. Yeah, apart from Pendrel. And Porterhouse is great. Yeah. Huh? Apart from Pendrel, 
yeah. Yeah, apart from Pendrel, but even he and his sort of affectations of being relaxed is a bit two-dimensional mm. up until this point. And I think Portaus is a massive breath of fresh air. Gladys is hilarious. Like, they just burst in and own everything. He's, like, blasting all the water off his raincoat into the fire, yeah. just making himself at home straight away. Loved it. Did you like his performance? I love Charles Lawton. Yeah, I he, thought you might. He is a capital A actor. Yeah. Proper, full-on, rada, Shakespeare, the whole fucking hoo-ha. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I think in in this, he's really... Despite the fact that he is the most working-class character, he is mm-hmm. absolutely classing up the joint with his huge performance that is amazing. Yeah. I just... Yeah, I think he's great. I think everything that he brings here is, is so much fun. Obviously, he's he's in this weird transactional relationship with Gladys. Yeah. Gladys is pretending to be posh. Mm-hmm. When... We know when we find out later she's just a chorus girl, just a chorus girl, but she's a chorus right, girl. Right, yeah. His entrance, like you say, is amazing. He sort of mm. he he comes in like he's always been there, like he belongs there. Which <laughs> yep. which is sort of like I don't know if that is a comment on like the nouveau riche or like the way that you sort of forget your beginnings when you become really rich. But mm. but he is he is rich and yeah. It's just there immediately. I love uh, Gladys's line when she first comes in, which is nice weather for ducks. Um, yeah, classic. <laughs> love that. Immediately, she's like tap dancing. Yeah. So she's light, bringing light to the entire scene, yeah. which has got really oppressive and really dark. She's she's a joy throughout as well. And yeah. let's just say, wars, right? Let's get our wars out now because she is amazing. I thought you said wars. Let's just say wars. Wars, yeah, she's fantastic. There is, there, there is the spectre of war hanging over. There is hanging over this much, much more so in the book, but definitely yeah. in the film. Yeah, it's mentioned, and again, that's how bitter Pendrel is. You know, he he paints himself as a cliche. So I'm the man with the twisted smile. You know, he's talking about like the cliche of the guys who come back from war damaged, but you know, gregarious and and generous and everything else. And uh, you know, that's done really well for me. I think he smashes that. But yeah, as soon as as soon as Sir Porterhouse comes in, we're treated to a totally different dimension and character in this movie. In the space of like five minutes, you've got Rebecca Femme in in the darkest room in the house with her face being warped by a bendy mirror. The best, you know, my talk- favorite scene in the, in the movie, I thought as well. Just yeah, so gorgeous. Every shot in that scene is phenomenal. Like yeah, and and she looks terrifying. She's always looking off into the distance while she talks about lust and pleasures of the flesh. Yeah. And it's obvious that, like you said, there's massively repressed homosexual vibes there. She's trying to sort of touch but not touch. Mrs. Mrs. Um, Waverton. Waver- Waverton. <laughs> Why are their names so hard to remember? I've seen this movie a million times. <laughs> but yeah, the, the bendy mirror stuff, the sort of slightly soft focus as she sort of leans in and out. Yeah. God, it's horrifying. And then a couple of minutes later, you've just got this big blustering guy telling huge stories to a room full of people yeah. who are just suddenly like, oh, okay, life, great. So I feel like the the mirror stuff there, if we're doing deep yeah. reads, like oh, yeah. obviously it's meant to be spooky and like twisted. I think what Whale wants us to do there is to consider how we're seeing things and like sure. adjust our perceptions a little bit in that moment and then sort of carry that with us for the rest of the movie. So like think about how we're seeing these people and adjust our perceptions and adjust our prejudices about the weirdness that we that we that we're seeing here because mrs waverton looks in that same mirror doesn't she after yeah after rebecca's left and she sees a kind of twisted version of herself so i yeah i buy that completely i think she's seeing a version of herself that she doesn't like in the mirror yeah why does she open the window 
I think, do you know what? I think in the book she says because the it was so stuffy in there that she couldn't breathe. Right. I think it's supposed to be yeah, incredible. Yeah. I mean, it feels cloistered and close and horrible it, just from visually in the movie. I don't think she says it in the movie necessarily, but somewhere in the book I think she says it felt it was stale and it stank and she needed to let some air in. And the wind literally like destroys the entire, like <laughs> yeah. knocks everything off the desk, including a mirror, trashes the place and she just runs out. And, she, and she's wearing now a party dress. She's wearing a sparkly, long sparkly earrings and a dress, whereas yeah. before everyone's just kind of soaked and grim looking. And um, I think it's Pendrel who says, oh, you look like you're dressed for a party, a good show or something. Like, you know, they're happy to have her all glammed up, which again is interesting. And it's when she comes in, we see all these enormous cobwebs in the corridor yeah. as well. So some cool juxtaposition there between her, like dainty, elegant, nice dress and the completely like bleak, cobwebbed corners of yeah. this stone corridor and this is when the electricity goes out uh, and it's revealed again just i think this is just hilarious they say that morgan's the only guy who can work with the electrics yeah we make our own electrics disqualified yeah. <laughs> he's been disqualified as an electrician that's fucking hilarious so the aforementioned quest for the lamp goes on uh, but there's a really cool moment where so horace is terrified to go upstairs to get this lamp and i think for many reasons that become obvious later on. But there's a great bit where they reach this kind of purgatory on the stairs where he says, that's my room. And then he tells Mr. Waverton that he'd like him to come into his room because there's some things he'd like to show him. Literally. And it's never alluded to for the rest of the movie what he means. Well, I think we can figure that out. I think we all know what it means, <laughs> but it's never like, it's never expanded upon. It's any hides in his room later on when, um, when Morgan's going crazy. There's something incredibly endearing about a very old, feminine, kind of well-to-do man with his own room, with things in it he'd like to show you. And it, it just, it warms me to the character so much more. He's terrified to go upstairs. He's openly showing his fear. He's basically quivering. Yeah. And then he's inviting another man into his room. And it's all just this, like, constant, quick-fire, messy, hidden message scene full of metaphors and i love everything on the stairs for me is just gold yeah no it's amazing i um i've forgotten about the 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 stuff on the landing until just now well it's almost transitionary that's that's what's so great for me about this movie because it's so short everything's so quick yeah nothing doesn't matter there's no fat on this movie it's trimmed down to the bone and you know in in the midst of all this we've got rebecca coming in stage left again saying he's drunk he's at it he's in the kitchen drunk and so you know that while this is all happening, we've got a, a drunk, raving lunatic who in the past has gone completely nuts during storms and smashed stuff up. So the tension is just ramping up big time. Yeah. And the, But there's a, another great line from Horace Femme on the stairs where he says, um, what's the exact word? Oh, why should we if we don't want to? He keeps saying he doesn't want to go upstairs. Yeah. And if he doesn't want to do something, why should he have to? And I think that just tells you so much about the character. You know, I don't want to. Why should we have to if we don't want to? And he's looking up the stairs. Everything he does and says, I think, is really profound. And I, I do think, you know, it's probably well documented that this is James Whale's vehicle for his own. You know, he I think it's quite well documented. He felt like a bit of a joke for a long time. Mm. And Horace is telling lots of jokes and being a comedic character a lot of the time while also masking a lot of existential despair you know he's like a comedy atheist at times but for most of the time he just seems really lonely yeah. incredibly uh isolated and i think his character is it, it just every scene he's in just ramps up and up and up to the very end so Karloff's drunk uh <laughs> at this point um morgan has been drinking nobody knows where he got the booze but he's starting to go nuts in the kitchen and we're greeted to a scene where 
Pendrel and Gladys go off to the, the coach house, to the car to get some whiskey. We see the leering face of Morgan at the window. And you just think for a second, he's just going to look out the window and look creepy. And then he just punches out the window. And it's got that great crackling old school glass sound. And we think, oh, this is going to go nuts now. But then we're treated to the romance scene in the coach house, yeah. which is another just like jarring transition to like a quote unquote tender moment between two characters who fall in love. So horny um, though, just so horny. like Super horn dog, yeah. There's something so intimate about taking off somebody's shoe. Right. Do you know what I mean? Like it's a thing that you just, yeah. that people tend to not do for other people. <laughs> yeah. So like, And wrapping her feet in a blanket yeah. is very tender. Yeah. It's almost like biblical, like. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, uh, Horny. But also how, like, I mean, how I don't know how much you were reading into this, but just how wet everyone and everything is the whole way through these rain scenes. Nobody really seems to, I mean, this is probably a thing of the times. Like, I don't know about you, but everyone's so averse nowadays to getting wet in the rain. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. People just don't go outside if it's raining. I don't. Yeah, except people in general seem to avoid the rain like it's a literal plague. And in this movie, you know, she's walking around in shoes that are literally just like, completely full of water and she doesn't give two fucks yeah she's completely drenched from head to toe and just nobody really cares and i find that really liberating to watch everyone's really dirty as well there's mud everywhere the car is absolutely caked and nobody cares i don't know it's just quite um releasing to see people just completely soaked and be like it'll dry off it's a great attitude and i think it it tells us a lot about the characters you yeah know? And, and yeah like he takes her shoes off and wraps it in a blanket and they kind of huddle up in this car and drink whiskey and they get to know each other and, and that's our first real kind of scene of intimacy in the movie. Yeah. I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. It's very cheesy. Yeah. It's it's a ham and cheese sandwich. They're both hamming it up. Yeah. It's cheesetastic. You know, Whale is doing that, obviously. I think, you know, this is how straight couples <laughs> this is how straight couples fall in love, that kind of thing. Yeah. But again, we get this slight tension though, because she's fucking spoken for. She's in this, like you said, transactional relationship with uh with old Porthouse, yeah. Yeah, so what's going to happen here? Is Pendrel going to, you know, this is like a Pistols at Dawn type situation. And Pendrel could not care less. No. <laughs> he's just so well, relaxed. He's in love, right? Yeah. He's yeah. completely in love with this woman that he knows nothing about that he's just met who just happens to be fucking roasting hot. Yeah, and they're going to run away together, clearly, in the morning yeah. when everyone makes it through the night. In the cold light um, of day. Yeah. As I, as I while, keep saying. This is, as I keep saying, while this is all happening... Again, like they're missing all the horror. Yeah. Pendrel, despite the horrors of war, is seeing none of the horror in this situation. And Gladys isn't either because she's she's kind of um, oblivious to what's going on. But in the house, we've got Morgan's gone nuts. He started attacking uh, the Wavertons. He's kind of trashing the place in the process. Roderick Femme has been discovered upstairs. There's been a fight on the landing in which Morgan's been smashed over the head with the symbolic lamp. During Roderick Femme's monologue, he says... He, she, who knows, let's say he says, madness came. He's talking about madness coming to the house. Mm. And he says, we're all touched by it. And he touches his face in that creepy way. It's the only bit that I find genuinely creepy in that scene. Mm. We're kind of allowed to think, right, everyone is nuts. Okay, we can we can lean into that a little bit more now. And there's a liberation there where, you know, we realize, okay, we weren't being judgmental of these people who are just a bit shut away. They're all completely bananas. That's yeah. great. And that's when he also says that Saul wants to make this house a burnt offering. And I knew that you'd love that line. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I love any sort of burnt offerings. Yeah. So, like, I think I think the idea of, of, of burning something in sacrifice is the most horrific way to sacrifice anything. 
Absolutely. So like just the, the the image that that sort of conjures up is just it's just amazing. It always yeah. I mean, I love The Wicker Man more than more than most other films in the world, and like yeah, me too. That always sort of puts me in puts me in that mind. Yeah, but our anxiety about all the naked flame in this movie is validated by yeah. that line. I think it's not. I don't think it was just me being like, "Fucking, there's a lot of candles." <laughs> like, yeah, it's it's validated. And you know, Roderick says that two of his children died when they were twenty, and we only actually are ever told explicitly about one. Yeah. So another layer of mystery for the sequel. I love. Just a tiny thing, but I love how fucking huge all the keys are in this house. Every time anyone locks a door, the key is like a foot long. Yeah. It's absolutely giant. And they're all running around with these keys locking doors. And that's when we're, we're given, uh, you know, Horace Hydes. We're, we're told about the existence of Saul, who is a, a, a raving, violent pyromaniac, according to everyone in the house. And that's when we see that Morgan has released Saul from his room. Morgan comes downstairs looking grim and still very drunk, and we see Saul's claw-like hand come down the banister. What did that scene do for you? Did you like that scene? Well, so, I mean, obviously, in the beginning, we see we see the hand, Morgan is there, and, and you're like, okay, he's standing weird. And then Morgan comes downstairs, and, and, the, and yeah. the hand remains. Yeah. And, like, obviously we know that it's Saul, but you're meant to be sort of really disquieted by that moment of, like, he leaves and his hand remains sort of like the, the thumb the thumb trick. Yeah, the thumb trick. <laughs> and yeah, it all feels very, very ominous. Like we know that shit's about to kick off because Saul is out yeah. and he's, he's standing in such an, an unnatural way and showing a really, a, a weird part of yourself to display. Yeah. If you could only... Hand first. Yeah. It's, it's sort of aggressive in a, in a really strange, unquantifiable way. It's just yeah. like here's some a bit of someone's arm, and that's terrifying because why would you only ever see a bit of someone's arm? It's how guys who love German expressionism enter a party. Yeah, <laughs> and first, and you know, here comes Saul. You know what we've been waiting for essentially since we found out he existed, and I think he's really unnerving. Well, I think that the, the whole like bait and switch at the beginning, like he's he's unnerving in the same way that everybody else is, but like yeah. he seems sort of benign. And like mm-hmm. nice until he, until he flips, and then when he flips, yeah. he he is he is gone. <laughs> he really flips. Yeah, but he's not physically scary. He's not big or deformed, or you know, he doesn't have any of these classic things we're expecting from a guy who's shut in a room in this house. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like Roderick Fem is kind of locked in for his own safety. I think Horace is allowed out and about. So is Rebecca. Like who's who do they shut away in this family? Yeah. And we see this kind of Einstein-looking guy, I guess. This is where the the real chaos begins. It's kind of hard to track who's where. But it's Pendrel and Saul for a little while. Yeah. And Saul tries to deliver this sort of story that he's been shut away because he knows that the rest of the family murdered the sister, who we're told fell off a horse and smashed her back up and died slowly in bed. I can't tell if Pendrel genuinely buys that, but he does turn his back on Saul and, and start putting people in safe places and uh, and then decides to go back and deal with Saul. And Saul talks a lot about needing help, but you, you know, he kind of wants to be rescued, but don't touch me. Again, there's just a lot going on with Saul's character, I think. Yeah. And then essentially once everyone's kind of squirreled away and locked away, it's Saul and Pendrel for kind of a showdown. And the showdown has peaks and troughs. It has moments of like intense violence and then it has moments of quiet discussion I mean, what are your takeaways from that whole sort of climactic sequence? What did you like about it? What did you not like? Well, I think it's, it is interesting because it does it does sort of mirror 
like a, a long form uh, relationship. Really, there's there's these high points, there's these low moments, there's this moments of like insane passion almost, and then mm. it all ends kind of horribly. And I, I don't know if that's maybe what they were going for, or if it was just it's it's odd that they would have these sort of quiet moments where they would where they would talk about things in the middle of mm. this fight and this he's trying to set fire to these curtains and and all of that stuff. It just seems so odd that they would. Obviously, they're they're back and forth for a bit. They're downstairs. The table's flipped. Like everything's everything's a mess. Everything is is mm. in disarray, and they still sort of find time to have a bit of a conversation. It's so it's mm. so odd, and again, so so jarring. Like everything else in the movie is, you're never quite sure who anyone is. You're never quite sure what's mm. going to happen next. Everything that you think you know, or at least everything that I thought I knew, is is backwards. Yeah, everything gets flipped. Yeah, especially the table. Especially the table. Nice one, Boris. One hand, giant oak table flip. Yeah. Pretty cool. <laughs> Do you reckon it was a real oak table? It looks real. Yeah, <laughs> A lot of that stuff looks real. I mean, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think one of the things I love about how Pendrel tries to deal with Saul is that he does try and talk to him and not in like a patronizing, I'm talking to a madman kind of way. A lot of movies at this time didn't do a great job of working with mm. mental illness. You know, mental health wasn't, really uh talked about in the way it is now you know we're still in the era of shell shock and you know just kind of giving women booze to shut them up if they're hysterical and you know all this kind of horrible stuff but he sits with Saul and he makes eye contact and he tries to talk to him and understand what's going on Saul's literally got a knife and is stabbing the table and talking about how he's made a study of flame and he's clearly insane <laughs> yeah and Pendrel is not in like a hostage situation trying to like talk him down but is just kind of being with him for a brief period of time to try and figure him out he's sort of trying to chat through with him so he can grab the knife though right or that, that, I guess yeah. that happens a bit later but like he also tries to get away by slowly sliding off of his chair and moving sideways at the same height, which is hysterical. Like, that would never work. <laughs> He's slowly sliding away. And he gets called out on it, and he has to come back and sit down. And this is when when Saul flips. I mean, we get that great shot of his, like, menacing face mm. behind um, Waverton and Pendrel's back. But when he really flips, he's hyper-violent, and he's really fast. Yeah. And he's he's, like, misleadingly agile for a guy who's supposed to be quite old. He picks up the giant rocking chair and just smashes it over Pendrel's head. He leaps well, upstairs. I don't know if you saw this. I missed it the first couple of times I watched it, but he leaps like hands and feet in the air onto Pendrel and starts biting his neck. Yeah, <laughs> he's fully biting him. It's great. And then you know he's he's run away with the candelabra and he's set the set the curtains on fire and and the two of them fall over this this banister. And that stunt is amazing. It's really they hit incredible. the floor so hard. Yeah. And at such weird angles, that's a backbreaker of a stunt, right? Yeah, and it's it's so intense. And I, I wish the movie had the courage to let Penderel die. Me too. Yeah, I'd love it if he died. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't die. Spoilers. He just sort of <laughs> is is narratively dead until it's like, oh, oh, I'm awake. What? Yeah. What happened? Let's be married. A swooning awakening. Yeah. So Saul Saul dies. Saul hits the ground pretty hard, hard enough to smash open his head. And this is when Morgan returns to the scene. Uh, the women are released from the closet. They're trying to get to Pendrel to give him aid. And Morgan keeps them at bay until he learns that um, Saul has fallen from the balcony and, and died. Uh, what do you see in that, that scene? That's the moment where we're like, these two people were in love and... 
Saul was actually just a misunderstood lover. I, I don't I don't know if I buy it in the moment. Yeah, well, the first time I watched it, I didn't have that takeaway. I thought these two had like a brotherly relationship because, you know, obviously Morgan. It, we find out Morgan is in the house. They have to quote unquote keep Morgan to keep Saul locked away because Saul is strong as hell yeah. and is a total madman. And my take on it was, you know, he feeds him. He probably tends to, you know, his, uh, you know, he takes him his washing and stuff like that. Like maybe there's a brotherly relationship here where nobody really gives Morgan any time or treats him like a human. And maybe Saul did. And that's all happened behind closed doors. But then on second and third watch, it's a really tender embrace at the end. Yeah. And it does seem, I mean, Karloff's eyes are, are telling you that his lover has died. Yeah. He carries him away like somebody who he really, really loves. Yeah. And it's that tenderness and the depth of someone like Karloff can bring to a character like that that we compl- I think we completely buy, you know, as he walks off with him. And then unfortunately, yeah, Pendrel doesn't die. He comes to life again in the arms of his true love. And everything from that moment onwards, to me, feels like James Whale saying, here's, here's like the happy ending yeah. that, you, that you want, but that the movie doesn't really deserve or warrant. Yeah. It's so stupid because, like, he wakes up and then, and then, uh, Porterhouse is like, Oh, you nearly died. You, you now have the rights to this woman. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You nearly died for her. So she's yours. And he's sitting there in his, like, raincoat and his cap with a pike <laughs> in an arm, in a, in a big, like, throne chair. He looks great. Again, like, it wouldn't surprise me if he was like, Here's how I'm going to sit for this scene. This is what I'm going to wear. Yeah. Like, he totally owns it. But then the strings start swelling up. It's light out. We know it's morning because there's cockerels. And everyone acts like nothing happened. Everyone who lives in the house, just kind of, especially Horace, goes out onto the step and says, it was lovely to meet you, and says goodbye. Like, like the house didn't nearly burn down. Like his brother didn't fall off a balcony, smash his head open and die. Like Morgan didn't get drunk and go completely insane and beat the shit out of everyone. Like they didn't discover Sir Roderick locked in the attic. Like none of that happened. Is James Whale trying to say like, you know, ignorance is bliss. Ignore all that horrible shit and crack on. Is he trying to, is it is it a subtle dig at the audience for, for craving uh, morning to come and a happy ending? What's going on? So I, I thought... That what he's saying in this in this moment is that the the gay people aren't considered real people, so it doesn't really matter. So not nothing that happened to them is valid because they yeah, yeah. because they're gay and ostracized. Yeah, wow. But that's that that was my take on it. It's hard to divorce the the queerness of James Whale and what he what we what we know him for and how those films have been interpreted over nearly hundred years at this point. Like yeah. so, it's 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 hard to not view it through that lens. Hmm. We will never really know what what he was intending with these with these scenes. We can only ever speculate. Yeah. There's a really like grim resilience to Horace at the end. The way he is kind of pretending nothing happened, you know, and that is maybe, I mean, it's a classic British trope, isn't it? You know, looking on the bright side, pretending bad stuff never happened. You yeah. know, <laughs> coming out of the war smiling. You know. There's got to be some social commentary there. And I think you're right. We'll never really know for sure. But I love how much room there is to speculate because it's not, the ending is not cohesive with no. the rest of the movie or the scene that immediately preceded it. It's really interesting. They are literally driving off on a sunny day at the end. Yeah. Also, I guess like Horace is so terrified to go upstairs and now he doesn't yeah. need to be terrified anymore. So maybe like. Yeah, dude, maybe that's it. Maybe his character is kind of liberated yeah. a little bit. I hadn't really thought of that. 
maybe it kind of is a bit of a happy ending for Horace. Yeah, maybe. His brother obviously terrorised him and, and made him live in fear and made it necessary for him to keep Morgan around, who he obviously didn't like. Yeah. Yeah, it's a huge point. But yeah, where does Morgan go after this? What, what's yeah. What's the sequel where Morgan is, I don't know, in a morning? Yeah, morning Morgan so, and the... But that's what's interesting, you know, so, you know, uh, Sir Roderick's talking about how they have to keep Morgan to keep Saul under control. Um, I, I spend way too much time thinking about the story between Morgan and Saul because, you know, was he brought in and then they fell in love? Did they grow up together? You know, was is Morgan scarred by Saul? You know, has Saul attacked him? There, there's just so much going on between those two characters and they're on screen together for about eight seconds. Yeah. That's such masterful filmmaking. To make somebody like me in the year 2023 think so long and so hard about an on-screen relationship that's about 10 seconds long, a hundred years after it's made. <laughs> like, yeah. It's amazing. And I actually, I love the ending. The first time I watched it, I was like, what a cop-out. Like, I, I felt really... I felt really let down by it. And then when I watched it again, I thought, oh God, it's actually perfect. Get a grip. Yeah. We also get um, Gladys screaming, he's alive! Yes. While she's cradling <laughs> yeah. Kendra, which, I, you know, that's that ain't no mistake. Definitely uh, That's the thing. I mean, what, what, we're, what we're seeing here, I think, is an incredibly subversive movie that doesn't get enough credit for being, if not the first, one of the first great... Uh, old dark house movies i mean it kind of created a genre yeah people do say that don't they i think you so. as a horror guy yeah tell me more i mean i am struggling to remember what castle frankenstein looks like in james wales frankenstein movies or what right. uh, dracula's castle looks like but i think between them they they set this sort of the spooky aesthetic that you get and, and has persevered for like we say basically 100 years at this point and that's all that's all james whale todd browning for a, a, a piece as well, and like I've I I love the the spooky house trope. Mm. I think it's one of my favorite tropes in in the genre or in cinema more generally. And I think my, I love I love that we we exist in a world where where that is so um, iconic that we can like we can play with that a bit. And yeah. um, have you ever seen uh, Steve Martin's The Man with Two Brains? Yeah, like classic. All, all of the all of the spooky house stuff in his apartment. I fucking love, yeah, love that so much. Yeah, the way that like we see spooky houses or spooky settings. So I watched a, or I th- I thought a lot about um, why horror films exist the way that they do. Mm. Obviously, the spooky house setting, the the distant sort of house on the hill, terrifying setting. Like in England or in the UK. Those those sort of houses on the hills, those sort of fortresses, they were where thousands of years of wars all happened. So mm-hmm. thousands of people have died to protect these these old manors or these these old houses. There's there's death all around these sorts of places. These hundreds and hundreds of year old buildings that have just sort of stood forever, maintained by one family. Death just lives there like forever. That, that informs everything. And we don't really think about it. When I go to, lived in Burnley for a long time, if I go to Townley Hall, I'm not thinking about the fact that so many people have died to protect this building in the shit end of fucking Lancashire. Like nobody's nobody's doing that these days. We're going for a nice yeah, sure. nice row on the lake, maybe have a picnic yeah. or something. And like, you think about Alton Towers, like Alton Towers is a fucking theme park now. Yeah. And it's yeah. just, it's, it's, <laughs> So insane that like wars were fought 
battles were fought on these grounds, and now yeah. I'm riding the fucking nemesis. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but also post post the sort of warring battling era, you've got endless amounts of human cruelty and crime in between. Yeah. You know, a, a house like the old dark house in this movie, yeah, would have had, you know, masses of bloodshed on, in and around it. But also, everything that happens within this family mirrors that. And, and I'm absolutely with you in loving this trope. And I think the house feels like a castle. You know, aesthetically, it's so castle-like. The only thing that takes you out of it being a castle is the wooden stairs. Yeah. That's what makes it a house, in my opinion. Everything else feels fully castle. The fact that we only see a small section of the house just adds even more fear and mystery to me and i yeah and i absolutely love how much this movie soaks up uh, and implies uh you know historical violence and trauma and and that family dynamic stretching back hundreds of years you know sir roderick would have been born in the late 1800s if he's 104 years old do you know what i mean yeah. like <laughs> that's crazy and in terms of how that history kind of seeps into the movie i worked out he would have been born in 1828 gosh right <laughs> Which is great. Yeah. And yeah, so without ladling it on thick, without telling us about all the, you know, all the historic death and without it being a haunted house, you know, it's not haunted by a ghost. It's haunted by all this violence and secrecy and trauma and repression. And and that's what bleeds out in this movie, I think. And that's what informs all these performances. These people were artists, you know, someone like Ernest Dessinger is reading this script. He's reading everything between the lines yeah he's probably having private conversations with james whale about the character and he's bringing so much of that into the role through incredibly taught beautiful cryptic dialogue everyone brings their a-game i think in terms of performance the storyline fucking rules the setting is perfect like i really struggle to put a finger on anything that's wrong with this movie yeah no completely agree apart from maybe the ending which yeah. feels like a cop-out, but it feels, like you say, less like a cop-out the more you, you more, the more you think about it, the more you engage with it. But in the moment of watching it, it felt like a cop-out to me. Yeah, but I think that's, the, that's one of the problems with this movie is it does have surprising depth. You kind of expect it to be a bit throwaway. Yeah. You know, some of the... When you when you see these... If you're not in the right mindset, I think you'd see these performances as a bit twee. You'd maybe see the storylines a bit cliche with our, you know, 2023 eyes. I think the deeper you dig into it, the more you lean into the aesthetic in particular and the more you kind of enjoy this as like a progenitor of lots of amazing horror to come. Yeah. The more, the more there is to... The more roast beef, pickled onions and potatoes there are to enjoy. Holy shit. I guess that's why they call it Phantom Power. You know, something that was surprising to me, I don't put an enormous amount of stock in IMDb's ratings at all, but what I found pretty surprising is that Old Dark House is rated 7 out of 10, and Frankenstein is rated 7.8. So, according to IMDb, there's less than a point between these two movies in terms of rating them out of 10 which i thought was quite surprising how how do you rate this movie you know if you had to give it some kind of numeric value i mean this is a uh, this is a solid it's 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 up there with the nines if it, if it had fog i'd give it 10 out of 10 yeah that's how strongly i feel about it there's just nothing that i would do to make this much better to be honest i, I there's a slight absence of if i'm being super critical like picking the tiniest nits 
there's a, a slight absence of a of a real antagonist. Yeah. Sometimes the, the the kind of soup of very deep, very flawed characters uh, who are all kind of antagonistic to the the outsiders feels like it lacks a bit of focus from time to time. And and I do love uh, a Dracula or like you know mm. a, a big bad, a villain. I know that you kind of feel the same. You, you like big baddies. Yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen a little bit more of that potentially, but. It's not a change I would make. I just feel sometimes the the menace is lost in the soup yeah. of characters a little bit. But then as soon as we meet Saul, we're like, okay, yeah, here he is. Here's the nutter. He's leaping on you on all fours and biting your neck until you fall to your death. That's that's pretty big bad. And I, I kind of love that it sort of slips through the cracks a little bit as well. It ain't no Frankenstein. It's not. It's 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 not many people's favorite horror movie. You know, it's it's got a little sort of hidden gem quality to it that I quite like. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's really key here because and I think that's because there's no no primary antagonist that you can hang your hat on and say mm. fucking yeah Frankenstein yeah so there is Boris Karloff giving that basically identical performance but yeah. when Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein invented a genre and then when when James Whale wrote Frankenstein it, it again invented a genre yeah. uh, it basically brought horror films into a, a new visceral direction. So there's a lot of baggage on the Shelley novel, and there's a lot of baggage on the original film. Whereas Priestley, a lot less baggage. This mm-hmm. film, as as a result of that, and I guess as a result of coming after Frankenstein, cinematically, uh, there's there's just a lot of less baggage to go with it. And then, like mm-hmm. we say, in the '60s, it disappeared. It was it just didn't exist at all anymore because because of a, a, a rights issue with William Castle in the. And the and the remake. So until I want to say the nineties, this film was basically forgotten. And you could get it in bootleg, or you could read about it in your old sort of Universal horror books that all of our aunties had. Where I first sort of encountered like these films was in those books. Saw mm. Lon Chaney and his makeup and all that cool stuff. Yeah, it it does have that sort of lost quality. It does have that sort mm. of obviously. You could buy it on Blu-ray now. It's out, it's out with uh, from Eureka, who put out loads of great stuff like this. So it's not quite there. I mean, we live on the internet. You can go boopity boopity boop, YouTube, watch the movie there. Like it's so easy. Yep. There's a bit of sadness in that, but also it's great that everything is is here. It's great that it's democratized. Like someone can hear about it and just watch it straight away. Yeah. You know, they don't have to quest for it and then forget it ever existed. Yeah. There's there's no gatekeeping anymore. Yeah. But yeah, so it doesn't have. A hundred years of you have to watch this and like it. I mean, I, yeah. nobody's watching Frankenstein and going, "Do you know what? That was actually shit." But yeah, to not have to deal with the baggage of that anyway, or to have to think everybody likes this. So if I don't like it, I'm a horror freak, bad guy type, I'm homophobic or whatever. Yeah, but again, nobody doesn't like Frankenstein. I know exactly what you mean. You're not being told your whole life that this is a quintessential yeah. horror movie. And then when you watch it and it's so amazing, you're like, well, it fucking should be. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's 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 more interesting to me than a lot of the Universal classics. Yeah. You know, I'd watch this any day of the week. Maybe not any day of the week. Six days out of seven, I would watch this over Creature from the Black Lagoon. Yeah. Creature is different to me because I find that to be the creepiest and, and probably my favourite of all the... Uh, of all the. Yeah, me too. That's why I picked it. I love it. But... I'm still so in love with Benighted and, uh, sorry, with um, with Old Dark House and the world that it exists in that when I want my little tropical vacation, I'll watch, I'll watch Creature. But this is more timeless. Do you, what's your least favourite of the universal, the, the core universal sort of cycle? Not, inc- probably, not, not including sequels. Probably Wolfie. 
Really? I like it a lot because there's so much fog and the, the effects are great. You do love fog. I do. And I love the story, the actual story itself. And I love a lot of subsequent Wolfman movies. But I'm such a huge Frankenstein, Dracula and Creature fan. I don't know. It'd be Creature or Wolfman, depending on a, on what day of the week it is. So for me, it's Invisible Man. Fuck, I hadn't even thought of Invisible Man. Yeah, it's Invisible Man. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even thought of it. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's bottom. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Um, it's not bad. I don't think it's bad. No, I think it's, in it's, that, it's great. In that company, but, yeah, yeah, it's it's hard to. Oh, I'm glad you reminded me of the Invisible Man, so I didn't have to say Wolfman was my least favorite. <laughs> I think Lon Chaney is doing so much special things in in the Wolfman. I think it's yeah, it's great. Obviously, the the, the concept of werewolves is is uh, something that we'll discuss next week. Um, but yeah. the particular performance that the that Lon Chaney has given us in the Wolfman, oh, it's incredible. It's phenomenal. It's amazing. Yeah. He's. You, you really would just believe that he's a man terrified that he's going to turn at any moment. It's fucking great. Yeah. And that's re- that's a really important part of that whole Wolfman character that I think people fuck up a lot yeah. in the preceding years is, uh, yeah, is, is the, the terror of becoming the out of control beast. Yeah. You know? It's great in Jekyll and Hyde. It's, it's you know, it's, it's, a, it's a fucking cool trope. I really like it. Yeah. Uh, cool. Well, so we say farewell to the old dark house. Yep, let's put it in our rearview mirrors. The sun comes up and the cockerel crows. Get back in our mud splattered auto car. Auto car? <laughs> Motor car, sorry. Automobile. Carmobile. And uh, wave goodbye to Horace Femme as he stands on his step bathed in beautiful sunlight. Yeah.